question we're going to take up this morning in our, in our passage as we continue our study in the Gospel of John is this, and you probably, probably see it on the, the slide there, how do you respond to death? That is the question we're going to take up in our passage. And by asking this question, I'm trying to expose the ways in which we wrongfully, even sinfully, respond to death. Shock, fear, anger, sorrow, regret. These are, these are just some of the emotions we feel when people who we love pass away, when they die. And these emotions, either you know personally or you've seen others, these emotions can be debilitating. If we're not careful, our thinking can be taken, taken captive by self-pity, anger, bitterness, fear, negative attitudes, even depression and immobilization. Of course, there's nothing wrong with grieving. As we'll see in this passage, grief is godly. We'll discover that. But that being said, we can get stuck, you might say, in our grief. We get stuck in our grief, and when we get stuck in our grief, well, sinful emotions sometimes take root. Thankfully, God does give us His Spirit and His Word to rightly guide us through our grief and sorrow. Amen? I hope you believe that. At the age of 20, the Scottish pastor George Matheson was, in, he was engaged to be married, and when he struggled to see, he went to the doctor, and the doctor told him that uh, he was going to go blind very soon. He brought this news home to his fiancée, and she, uh, she broke off the engagement, stating that she didn't want to be married to a blind man. Certainly unfortunate and sad. He, was, he came to become a, a very successful theologian. He wrote a lot of books, and he was a professor for many, many years. And he just said this, The comfort of Christ's revelation is not that it teaches emancipation from sorrow, freedom from sorrow, but emancipation through sorrow. Emancipation through sorrow. And that's true, at least until the Lord returns As we discussed last week, sickness and death are a part of this human experience. We know that to be true. So then, how do you respond to death? If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read John chapter 11, verses 17 through 35. 17 through 35 this morning, John chapter 11. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have, my brother had, would not have died, excuse me. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe 
that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had, had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is our big idea this morning. We'll see two responses in this passage that will help us respond rightly to death. It's quite simple. Two responses help us respond rightly to death. In our message last week, John introduced us to three people, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. These were especially important people to Jesus, as it says in verse 5. Uh, Jesus loved Mary and her, Mary, excuse me, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This family, this important family, lived east of Jerusalem in a vi- village called Bethany. It was from that village that family, the family sent messengers to Jesus, we studied this last week, telling him that Lazarus was ill. It wasn't long after those messengers came that Lazarus, his condition worsened, and in fact, in John eleven fourteen, Jesus tells us Lazarus has died. He fell dead. In the passage we just read this morning, we find the story of Jesus' trip to Bethany. John records, a, records for us two contrasting responses, one with Martha and the other with Mary, which are, I believe, representative of two different responses to death. And so that's kind of what, what we're doing this morning is we're looking at those various responses and seeing, seeing what, we might, what, what we might learn from them. Martha's response, of course, comes first, and that one is in verses 17 through 27. Of the two sisters... Martha is the more pragmatic of the two. She's the more practical one. You probably remember the story. There's another story with Martha and Mary in it in Luke chapter 10. In that snapshot, Martha is rebuked by Jesus for continuing on or to carrying on with practical workings of the house while Jesus is present. Martha in that passage is characterized as the worker, again, the more practical one, the worker, and Mary is characterized as the worshiper. In that passage. What that snapshot reveals is that Martha was the active sister and likely the manager of the home. In this way, we can visualize Martha kind of busy around the house after Lazarus' passing and Martha in a secluded place mourning. And so Martha was busy at work when these messengers or news comes to her that Jesus had come. Of course, none of that means, or none of this means, that Martha loved her brother any less than Mary. It just reveals that each responded to Lazarus' death in different ways. The words of verse 21 capture Martha's response. Lord, it says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
I believe the word that describes Martha's feelings here would be disappointment. That's a word I'm going to kind of capture this morning, disappointment. It's the first response that will help us to rightly respond to death. I'm going to put it this way. If you're disappointed by death, that's the first point on our outline this morning. If you're disappointed by death, disappointments come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You've probably encountered them. I'm sure you have. What's lurking behind our disappointments so often are expectations. Barnabas Piper has captured this saying, every disappointment is an unmet expectation. Apparently, Martha expected Jesus to be there for Lazarus when he got sick, when he fell ill. When Jesus failed to respond in time, well, she was disappointed. Her unmet expectation resulted in a disappointment. And, frankly, we're tempted to respond exactly the same way when death draws near to us. While we don't expect Jesus to physically show up, we certainly expect His power to show up. We have the expectation that He'll answer our prayers as we've offered them. We expect Him to move to action based on our assessment of the situation. And not only that, but as you know, death leaves us emotionally disturbed. So often we're, we're unable to think clearly or grasp the truth. Someone said that the theology one learns at funerals is often contrary to that that is taught in Scripture. In our distress, it's hard to see the balance of truth, and our understanding can fall short of what the Bible teaches. So then, well, what does the Bible teach? At least, what does this passage teach us? Well, there's a couple things for us to consider. Number one, if you're uh, disappointed by death, understand who Jesus is in His prayer. Understand who Jesus is in His prayer. I'll explain what I mean by that. In verse 21, again, Martha says, I know that he will, excuse me, uh, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, the disappointment. In verse 22, the response, but even now I know, or she continues, I should say, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is an interesting statement and one that reveals a little bit of a misunderstanding on the part of Martha. There's at least two words that are used for prayer in the Bible. The one Martha used here describes an inferior asking a superior for favors. It's used to describe a child asking their parent for something or maybe a, a, a subject uh, of his ruler, in which case, using this word, she really implies that Jesus is somehow inferior to God, that they're not equal, Again, he is in some ways kind of like a child asking a father for something, that they're not equal. This is particularly important as it relates to John's gospel because John's gospel is, is always concerned, it seems like almost in every verse, to, to push forward the idea that Jesus is equal with God. The deity of Christ is on every page of this gospel. When Jesus prays, he actually uses a different word. He doesn't use this word that Martha uses. He uses a word that speaks of an equal, uh, someone who is equal making a request. And so, for example, in John 14, 16, when he says, and I will ask the Father, 
It's translated ask. It's the same word, but behind it are two different Greek words. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In this way, Jesus is asking an equal. He is equal with God. So it reveals a little bit of a misunderstanding in Martha's understanding of who Jesus is. Not only this, but toward the end of the story, we discover that Martha actually struggles to believe that God would give Jesus what he asked. We'll see this next week, but in verse 39, when Jesus tells them to remove the stone, you remember her response, Lord, by this time there will be odor, for he has been there, he, he has been dead four days. From this misunderstanding of Martha, we gain a better understanding about who Jesus is. Martha speaks to Jesus as if he were some human prophet. He is more than a human prophet. He is more than one who would work a miracle like Moses or Elijah did. Martha didn't understand who Jesus was, as I'm saying, in his prayer, that he was equal with God even in his prayer life. Recognizing the equality that Jesus has with God in his person and through prayer when death draws near will help us to deal with our own disappointments and disappointments that surround death. You see, death is not a testimony of Jesus' failed influence to, or his failed attempts to influence his Father. That's not what death is. Jesus and God are not playing bad cop, good cop as it relates to death in order to kind of manipulate us to believe or see the world from a certain perspective. There's nothing, therefore, in the death of our loved ones that is outside the perfect will of Jesus, the perfect will of Jesus and the Father, and God, of God's will. And coming to terms with this is our first step towards rightly responding to death. And so if you find yourself disappointed by death, number one, understand who Jesus is in his prayer, and number two, understand who Jesus is in his person. Well, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 24 gives us another misunderstanding of Martha. It's not that she's wrong about the resurrection in the last day. She's not wrong about that, but she's failing to see, you might say, the whole picture. She takes Jesus' words that Lazarus will rise again, and she, she makes them refer to the final resurrection at the end of the age. This reveals that Martha doesn't really have a category for the immediate resurrection of Lazarus. Martha's words are very much in line with a Jewish understanding of the resurrection. You might recall Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, David's words. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And then he says, for, I, uh, for, you, excuse me, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Although the Old Testament doesn't describe life after death in detail, doesn't give us a lot of details, it does affirm a resurrection. In fact, you probably know the oldest book in the Bible, Job, even speaks of a resurrection. In Job 19, verses 25-26, Job declares, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, Job says, I shall see God. In my flesh, I shall see God. He looked forward to a resurrection. And yet, as Jesus has a habit of doing so often, He turns a misunderstanding, He turns Martha's misunderstanding into an opportunity to teach something, an opportunity for Martha to understand who Jesus is, as I phrased it, in His person. Who is Jesus? Well, He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's not so much that Jesus will give resurrection and life, that's true, but that he is the resurrection and the life. And, with a kind of paradox, somewhat of a paradox, though he die, yet shall he live, he says, Jesus brings out the greatest truth, at least one of the greatest truths. Physical death is not our chief concern. When Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, He moves her focus away from that future hope. He moves it away from a future hope focus to a personalized belief in the one who provides that future hope. Recall, Jesus gave bread from heaven, John 6, verse 27. He gave bread from heaven, and then He declared what? I am the bread of life. Well, similarly, He raises the dead, and then He declares, I am the resurrection and the life. There will never be a resurrection or the prospect of life outside of Jesus. Whereas the world and the unbeliever can only see death as an end, well, believers, we, we see death as a doorway to eternal life. And not only that, but He's the life for us now. The life that verse 26 speaks of is a life now. The moment that we put our trust in Jesus, we begin to experience that life to come that He's talking about, that resurrected life, a life that cannot be touched by death. The Bible uses the illustration of being dead and being raised anew in so many places, not just of, of future hope, but even now. Principally would be Ephesians 2, a very, very familiar passage, right? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's saying that we were dead. He goes on, in which you, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were, again, dead 
in our trespasses, what does he say then? Made us alive together with Christ. The illustration of death and life. It's not just a future hope life, but it's a life that we can experience even now, even today. Thinking of the book of Colossians, which uses that illustration of baptism and speaks of that same thing. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so this resurrection life can be ours even now. How does this speak to those who might be disappointed by death? Well, it challenges us to see the resurrection as more than a principle. It is a principle. But to see it more, as a, more than a principle, but as a person. As a person. The resurrection isn't something reserved for the future, It's something we actually experience right here and right now. And we experience that resurrection, as he says here so clearly, when we do what? When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? However, Martha might have understood the death of Lazarus or misunderstood it. I think she makes up for it in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha gets a bad rap so often when she's compared to her sister. You remember, I already referred to Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen what is better. So Martha's kind of the picture of her is that she's busy doing all of these things and and she doesn't appreciate Jesus while he is there. So she gets a bad rap. That being said, I see Martha as as an amazing woman of faith based on this passage, based on this verse. And she's very emphatic in verse 25. I believe is what she's saying. Underline it, circle it. I believe whatever anybody else says, I don't know what they believe about you, but for me, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is to come. And not only that, but she's not vague. I mean, she has good doctrinal content here. She is affirming rightly who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's equal with God. And He is the Deliverer, that one promised who is going to come into the world and save us. You are that one. I believe, she is saying. And so... Martha's story here and her response to Jesus and Lazarus' death. In summary, when Lazarus becomes ill, Martha responded, Martha expected, excuse me, Jesus to come to Lazarus' aid. When Jesus failed to arrive on time and Lazarus died, well, as I've said, Martha felt disappointed. She was faced with disappointment. She had an expectation that Jesus would heal Lazarus, and when he didn't show, when he didn't come in time, she became disappointed by her unmet expectation. Through her conversation with Jesus, as we've seen, we learn how we might rightly respond to death. When we are disappointed by death, 
We need to understand who Jesus is in his prayers and understand who Jesus is in his person. In his prayers to the Father and in his person, he is one with the Father. In this way, we're able to look through that curtain of death and see God's sovereign hand at work, even in death. We see him at work. He is not only working in the death of our loved ones, but he is, he is offering us, I guess this is a furthermore, he is offering us a resurrected life. And it's there for anyone who would believe on him. Now our passage takes up a second response in verses 28 through 36. And this one is of Martha's sister, Mary. Mary then will kind of come into the forefront in this second uh, section. I've already mentioned that these, are kind of two, these women have two contrasting temperaments. Mar- Martha was the more pragmatic of the two. She was the one who was up on her feet working and serving others. And Mary, on the other hand, she appears to be the more reflective. You might even say the more emotional of the two. Even in verse 28, it's, it's Martha who's up and tells Mary that Jesus, the teacher, has come. She needs Martha to tell her. As we discovered in verse 20, she had been seated in the house. Uh, being seated in the house, remaining there, would have been kind of a cultural position of mourning in their day. To sit or to remain seated was a kind of a posture of mourning in these times. Also in verse 31, it says there were Jews with Mary who were consoling her. So there was a group there with her. Verse 31 tells us that when Mary went to see Jesus, the the Jews followed her thinking she was going to the tomb to weep. All of this is very much in line with the Jewish practice of mourning in the first century. Jewish funeral custom dictated that a family hire two flute players and one professional wailing woman. Thus, we might say there was a a lot of kind of professionalism around the death of a loved one, professionalism around funeral services and mourning. When Mary finally does come to Jesus, she does differently than Martha. Her response is more emotional, and so it demands a different response from Jesus. Verse 32, she falls at Jesus' feet and declares in the same words that Martha offers, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If Martha's response was one of disappointment, well, I believe this passage will reveal to us that Mary's is one of discouragement. Discouragement. The snapshot we have of Mary reveals how death tempts us to turn inward and cut ourselves off from people because we're discouraged. Verse 33, it It says, Jesus saw Mary and the Jews with her weeping. This is not a word like uh, a light word. It really means to weep, to wail. She was weeping a lot, crying out loudly. And what else might we expect from those who are discouraged by death? Some examples. If death draws near when we're young, well, we're discouraged that we've never experienced marriage. We never had a successful career. The world will simply not know what it lost because we've died too young. We've made no lasting impact. We've failed to get started, and so we're discouraged by that. If if death draws near in our 40s, well, we're discouraged that we didn't live long enough to set our children free, 
to hold our grandchildren, to maybe complete a project that we started, accomplish some goal that we had in mind. Even when we're older, we're not free from discouragement. Here we might grow discouraged by all that we seem to have to give up in death. We might have to say goodbye to those we've loved and cherished for a long time. Some of our relationships have gone on for half a century. So it's hard to think of parting or stopping those relationships when death draws near. I don't believe being a Christian precludes us from feeling discouraged by death. That being said, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, you probably know, reminds us that our grief, even in our discouragement, is uniquely Christian. We have a Christian kind of grief. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died. Right? It's a euphemism about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Christian grief has hope connected to it. And such hope-filled grief... I believe is on display even in our Savior. In verse 35, he says, it says, Jesus wept. Not about you, but that seems like a strange thing. It's common. If we're Christians, we've been around, we know this story, and we've heard it so often. Yet it is strange that Jesus would weep, that Jesus would cry. The Bible gives us many snapshots of our Savior. In the Gospel of John, we've seen many of those We've seen him celebrating at a wedding. We've seen him in the temple turning over tables. We've seen him walking on water, feeding 5,000. We've seen him uh, healing a paralyzed man, healing a man who was blind from birth. As we continue our way through the gospel, we'll see him wash the disciples' feet. He'll give us a new commandment. We'll even see him stand courageously before Pontius Pilate. Yet... This is a, an unlikely snapshot, you might say, that we cannot forget, we cannot overlook. That is, our Savior crying at a funeral, mourning the death of a loved one. And it's this snapshot. In this snapshot, there's comfort for those who are discouraged by death. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, it says, in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I will say this is a very difficult passage to interpret. There are many challenges in this one verse to uh, unpack and to uncover. The translation here in the ESV is, is somewhat misleading. In fact, if you have an ESV, there's a footnote there down at the bottom. It says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, and the footnote there says, or was indignant. Well, there's a lot of difference between being deeply moved and being indignant, I think. I'm deeply moved by the 1812 overture, but I'm indignant when I read the news and I see injustice. Those are two very different kinds of emotions. So which is it? Is it deeply moved is it indignant? How are we to understand these words in verse 33? Well, the word picture in the Greek is actually the, the idea of snorting, uh, a horse snorting. Uh, that's what the word picture is in this idea of being deeply moved, to snort like a horse. 
Apart from this verse, and in verse 38, which John uses again, verse 38 says, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Outside of those uses, it's found in the New Testament three times. Matthew 9.30, Mark 1.43, and Mark 14.5, if you're interested. In those passages, it's translated, sternly warned, sternly charged, and scolded. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but we have to admit in the study of this that there is a sense of anger, there's an undertone of indignation, of anger that is in this word. You can't really remove it from the word. And so, that being said, in what or in whom is Jesus angry? This is what has perplexed interpreters for ages. Well, some have, some have suggested that what Jesus is angry at, what He's indignant at, is Mary and her response. Maybe you've heard that interpretation. She's, he's upset with Mary, and He's upset with Martha, and He's upset at the morning, and all these people, and so he is, he's, he's upset that maybe they're forcing His hand. He's going to have to do this miracle now because all these people are here. People say this, and I'm not sure that I, I follow that interpretation uh, I find it hard to accept, first, because Jesus has already told us that He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You remember last week we studied that in verse 4, Jesus said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus knows He's going to do this. The idea of them having to force His hand, and He's upset or angry about that, doesn't seem to fit that idea. Furthermore, it doesn't really jibe well with the overall portrait of our Savior in my mind. Now, I know God's ways are not our ways, and my understanding of who Jesus is isn't ultimately the, the best. You know, I need to submit that to Jesus. However, all the things that I have, all the stories we have of Jesus, it doesn't really seem to fit well that He would be angry in that way. It doesn't seem to fit His character. So, is there another way that we might approach this or understand a sense of anger that Jesus would have as He stands at a funeral and He sees all this weeping and mourning. In what sense would Jesus be angry? How would He be indignant? Well, the way I understand it, I see it, I think Jesus is simply anger, angry over death. He's angry over death. And through this anger, if you're discouraged by death, Know that Jesus is angry over death. Last week I tried to make something very, very clear. The fact that God can bring good from death doesn't mean that death is good. Death is not good. Death is the result of sin and it's evil. But God does make good out of it. But death in itself is not good. And so, Jesus is angry at that death. You might find it hard to believe, but sometimes it's right to be angry. You realize that negative emotions are not always bad. Shouldn't acts of violence and abuse distress us? How do you feel when someone's mean or rude to your, ch to your children? Does that make you angry? I think it ought to. Injustice should make us angry. The emotions of distress and anger are not sinful in themselves. In fact, sometimes I wish we were more upset at injustice. 
Sometimes I wish we were more upset when God's people call evil what is call, uh, good what is evil. Sometimes I wish that would get us a little riled up. Not that we would respond, of course, in sinful ways. I'm not saying that. Of course, we would not want to respond in sinful ways. And Jesus doesn't do that. But that godly anger would drive us to respond to such things with courage and conviction and compassion, which is what Jesus does. And such is true in the life of Jesus. He responds in these ways. In the face of death, Jesus was anger, but he never sinned. So forgive me a lengthy quote here, but I think it's just too good to pass up. B.B. Warfield writes, describing this passage, he says, it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy, namely, Satan. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. I might go a little further than him there, but we'll take it. His soul is held by rage, he says, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but, as indeed it is presented throughout the whole narrative, becomes a, deci a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. I love that. That's what the, the resurrection of Lazarus is. A decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement, deeply moved, that's what we're talking about, is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as He wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, He says, but in flaming wrath against His foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. These are powerful words, and I think they capture well the anger that Jesus has over death. In the face of Mary's discouragement over death, Jesus expressed anger over it. It upset him. It ought not to be. It was only because of sin, disobedience, breaking the commandment, that because of that sin, death entered into the world. Thankfully, God is going to make it all right again through His Son. Of course, His anger is righteous anger. It does never drive Him to sin. It never did. His anger is rightly pointed at the features of this fallen world. Sin, illness, death incite His wrath, and we shouldn't be surprised. I don't know about you, but I want a Savior who's mad at death and wants to take over it. And He does. He wins in the end. These same features of this fallen world that induce his indignation, the, the weeping, the, the death, all these things that upset him, well, those same features are those that generate his grief. Kind of like two sides of the same coin. If you're discouraged by death, know, number one, Jesus is angry over death, and number two, know that Jesus cries over death. So much emotion given to us from our Savior. So much, dare I say, humanity. This is what love does when confronted with loss. With only two words, Jesus wept, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible. 
We're given a trove of theology. John touches the atmosphere with his explanations of the deity of Christ in this book. I think I introduced this book. It's like we're soaring through the sky like eagles with all this just fanciful ideas about who Christ is. High kind of language. And yet, our Savior is profoundly human. So human that we read these words. Jesus wept. That's how human He was. Now, to be clear, His tears are not uncontrollable. There's different language that's used even in this passage with the asking of God, but also with the weeping. Mary's weeping is is uncontrollable. It's wailing. The word that that describes Jesus' weeping is different. It's not that. It literally is something like, He shed a tear. So, He's weeping, but it's controlled, you might say. It's portrayed differently. It's not uncontrollable. He's in control. He's shedding a tear. He's weeping silently you might say. And it wouldn't be human to feel the loss of a loved one and not not weep. It just isn't human to not cry if we love someone. And Jesus teaches us that neither would it be divine. Neither would it be divine to feel the loss of a loved one and not weep. The God-man stands at a funeral and cries over the death of a loved one. What, a greater, what greater picture could there be of a God who connects with His people than that He would cry for us? It's profound. Consider the implications. John is telling us that Jesus was deeply moved in His spirit and troubled, even though, we've already said this, He knew what He was going to do. He knew that He would raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knows the outcome is good, yet He mourns with those who are devastated by their loss. He enters in. And if you're one of His children, well, He loves you as He loved Lazarus. He loves you with the same love. He weeps for you. He weeps for your loved ones as He wept for Lazarus. The Bible is very clear. It says it very plainly. 1 Peter 5, 7. He cares for you. It's so simple. The God of the universe that spoke the world into creation, He cares for you. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope you sense it and you know it's true. The well of His sympathy for you will never go dry. It never will. The book of Hebrews says he is our great high priest. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Well, because he has been tempted, it says, in every way just as we are, yet he is without sin. One author put it like this, when we pour out our troubles to Jesus, we bear our souls to a God who gets it, gets it, excuse me. There's no suffering that we can experience that He has not already endured. Abandoned by friends, His disciples deserted Him and fled. Feeling forsaken by God, He actually was. Dreading death, He sweat blood. Because we have such a compassionate Savior, we should, as Hebrews 4.16 says, approach the throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus wept. And yet, he wept as one who had hope. Look again at his words to Martha in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I promise that everything changes if you do. And if you believe it, you know that it changes everything. Our hope in the resurrection won't eliminate our present grief. I would never promise you that. You will have grief in this life. But it will give you what you need to endure it, to move through that grief, knowing that He is the resurrection and the life. We'll find a way out of our grief. The same Jesus that will say, as we'll study next week, that will say to Lazarus' grave, Lazarus, come out. Well, that same Jesus will stand at your grave. Will He not? And He will say, come out. And you will come out of the grave, all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we find ourselves disappointed or discouraged by death, I know it's cliche, cliche, but Jesus is the answer. He really is. And I, and I, don't, I don't mean to minimize any other emotions that we might feel as it relates to death. I just captured these two because I believe they're here. But whatever emotion you might feel related to death, Jesus is the answer. He is our hope. For those disappointed by death, understand who Jesus is. Understand that He is sovereign over death. He is the great I Am. He had no beginning. He has no middle. He has no end. He just is. And He is the resurrection and the life. It defies grammar. It doesn't even make sense. It's a concept that kind of bends our minds, that He can be these things, and He always was these things, and He always will be these things. For those discouraged by death, know that Jesus is angry over death. Death is evil, and He's going to write that. He has righted it. He has made it right. For all those who would believe in, in Him can have new life even now. In this moment, they can have new life. Not because you've done a lot of work, not because you put your life in order, but because your life is out of order. And you told Jesus, I know my life is out of order. Will you put it in order for me? Leaning on Him and believing in Him, you can have that resurrected life even now. And John is always pushing us to believe, even in this passage, right? Do you believe this? It's this open question that just leaves for us. John doesn't want us to leave today, this passage, and not answer that question. Today. Do you believe it? I hope you do. Because John doesn't want us to walk through those doors. Jesus doesn't want us to walk through those doors without answering that question. And there's no better time to think about it than in the context of death. Do you believe this? 
We started with a question. How do you respond to death? Well, we move from that question to this question. How will you respond to death? Remember that quote I had at the introduction. The comfort of Christ's revelation is not that it teaches emancipation from sorrow, but emancipation through sorrow. And I believe that's true, and I believe this passage teaches it. Whether you're tempted to feel disappointed or discouraged, or you find yourself stuck in grief, for any reason, please take up these words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Amen. Joel.